Welcome to this rather quarantined episode of the Germanic American Institute podcast. This is Michael recording this intro from at home while observing the stay at home order during COVID-19. I certainly hope that you are at home as well, safe and sound and healthy. And of course, the same also goes for your family. Today's podcast was recorded while we were still at the GAI and capable of actually observing our mission of culture and remembrance. We had the opportunity to welcome Mindy Ratner from NPR, who recorded a program, The Kaddish, which was broadcast on NPR. And I do have the privilege to talk with Mindy about her show and her personal experiences. This is a very from the heart conversation between to people who want to know more, and you get to listen in. April is the Holocaust Remembrance Month. The Holocaust was also known as the Shoah. It was the World War II genocide of the European Jews, and between 1941 and 1945, across German-occupied Europe, Nazi Germany and its collaborators systematically murdered six million Jews, two-thirds of the Jewish population in Europe. Today's conversation with Mindy looks toward those who have intimate memories and a story to share. There are so many things that are interconnected, um, including the reason for why I made the program in the first place. It's, it's, it's a challenging topic. And I think it remains a challenging topic. I hope so. Uh, particularly considering I'm Austrian, which makes it twice as challenging. So my very first speaker on the program uh, was also Austrian by birth. Yes. And he actually did escape with, uh, through the British. Yes, that is correct. One of the few people who made it out and had to leave grandma and his, I believe... Uh, all their goods. Yeah, all their all goods, their, everything. All their worldly goods. Um, and his grandmother surely was brilliant, having come up with a strategy of, of going and crying every day until the guy in charge. I mean, when when... Theodore Bickel was telling me this story. The moment he said, get that woman out of here, I thought surely it would have a tragic consequence. Get that woman out of here and take her out and shoot her. But no, that wasn't it. Take that woman out of here, give her whatever she wants. He just never wanted to see her face again. And this... this brilliant risky strategy was how the family got to be together again in what was then Palestine and how all their I don't know it's all their things but certainly as as he said very clearly in the interview the books were the most important thing and they got packed up and shipped to Palestine why why books because learning was clearly important to Bikel's family as it was to every Jewish family. Scholarship, learning, 
um, intellectual activity, all of these things are important, you know, and, and religious scholarship, it all was important. And for, for Bikel and his parents, there was this, this great wealth of Yiddish literature that otherwise would have gone up in a bonfire. Right. And this was so precious, you know, so that the books were rescued. Um, it's been a few years since I actually interviewed him. It was 2013, and the day of the interview was actually the very last time I saw him alive. And I seem to recall um, that he said he he kept the books and then donated them to a book center, the name of which, I'm sorry to say, escapes my my memory right at this moment, but there's a, I think it's called the Yiddish Book Center or the National Yiddish Book Center or something. Uh, a, a guy here in the United States who has dedicated himself to saving Yiddish books, rescuing them from, you know, the homes of people who have died. What's going to happen with the books? Oh, give them away. No, it's kind of like preserving a whole literary legacy in the Yiddish language. So the significance of history lives on in the books. Absolutely. Are we currently, contemporarily, making the mistake of disregarding books? Well, <laughs> I have always been an avid reader. Uh, and I mean with the book in my hand. I'm not talking about on an electronic device. Oh, no, there's something so precious about books to me. Um, and yeah, I think if we if we do ignore them, then there's a certain amount of risk involved, I think. What was it like to actually record that? And, and what was it like to talk to somebody who actually has survived this? Well, it, it's rather interesting how this program came to be, and um, it actually had to do with someone who doesn't have very much contact, I think, with Jewish people. And it was after my friend, the actor Theodore Bickel, passed away. I had been away from work on medical leave. I got myself a new hip. Congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> um, and it was while I was recuperating and getting back into daily life that I learned that Theo had died. This was in 2015. Mm -hmm. And I felt very sorry that there was not something that I could do to help commemorate his life. I couldn't help uh, create a, an, obit, you know, an audio obituary or something like this. I had all this audio from him dating back to 2013, when he came to St. Paul to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Association for Jewish Theater. That particular year, they were here in St. Paul, hosted by the Minnesota Jewish Theater Company, with which I have some connections, mostly as a volunteer uh, and former board member, and so 
because they knew that I had a connection with Theodore Bickel, I was asked to be the one to present him with the award. First, I thought, I'll let it be a surprise. And then I thought, well, maybe not, because <laughs> I wanted him, I, I really wanted him to do something for um, uh, a completely different kind of program, one for Hanukkah, which is a, a joyous holiday. I wanted him to read a story or do something, and he had agreed to do that. The day that I brought him over to the radio station, he was not in a Hanukkah mood. He was in the mood to sit down with his friend, that is, myself, sit down with me to reminisce about the day that the Nazis rolled into Vienna. And if you listen to this program, it's the first thing he says. He was 13 years old. He was old enough to remember everything. And it made an impression on him that lasted a lifetime, that affected just the way his life was to continue in any event. Once he was done with that, I got what I wanted for the Hanukkah program. Mm. And that, that was, as I said, that was the last time that I saw him. So when he passed away, I was talking to someone in my department, and I said, I just wish I could commemorate his life in some way. And the reply was, well, maybe you could use it in a Holocaust program. And I'm sure that the person who said that had no clue right. <laughs> where that would lead. Mm -hmm. um, I have to say that making this program was the single most difficult project I have ever undertaken as a professional. Because? And I, well, to begin with, this idea about what it should sound like mm -hmm. immediately popped into my head, but it meant doing some things I had not done before. It meant looking for a certain kind of music, and I'll tell you about that in a, in a moment. And also, I wanted, I, wanted talk, I wanted to talk to people whose lives were affected in some way by the Holocaust. It was just this idea that kind of swam around in my head, and there, there's a gentleman no longer alive, I'm sorry to say, who was a refugee, I want to say from Czech Republic, well, it was Czechoslovakia then, Czechoslovakia or, or Romania, I forget. And uh, he used to coordinate um, a Holocaust survivor group at the Sholem Home, which is a Jewish senior citizen, you know, nursing home and senior citizens residence. And I had just, I had said, Walter, you know, I, I have this very vague idea. So what did he do? He sent out email to everybody in the group saying, Mindy Ratner is going to be our featured guest and so I appeared before this group of strangers. I, mean, I only knew two people in the group. The rest were unknown to me. 
And I found myself talking about this, this idea that was not fully formed. I had nothing on paper, but it was more, uh, uh, I talked more about the aspirational aspect of what it would be like to make something like this, if I can find the right kind of music, if I can talk to, if there are people who are willing to talk to me. You know, I, I had explained to people that um, my mother was a refugee from Germany, that the vast majority of the people in her extended family, the ones who did not leave, did not live. And so Holocaust is not some abstract concept to me, you know. Um, and, and so before I knew it, I came away from this meeting. Several of the people who are in the program are people who I met that day, that day. I had... Uh, I did interviews with Holocaust survivors. There's one woman whose parents were in the Danish underground. There's one gentleman, a longtime friend of mine, whose parents were sole survivors of the Holocaust. I got, you know, they, they came from many different countries, from Germany and Poland and Greece and Hungary. And before I knew it, I had this... I felt like I was having a, a universal experience and listening to those interviews and editing them to get the most impactful material. There were times when I just wanted to, you know, I just wanted to find a quiet place and have a good cry, you know, just to... Um, <laughs> to let the, uh, let the, like a safety valve <laughs> for me. Um, so it was, it was, it was very difficult and incredibly rewarding. And I have to say that as you listen to it, there are some things that my, my storytellers say that are impactful because they take you so close. So considering that the stories were very personal and perhaps descriptive and graphic enough not to be broadcast to that extent, and connecting this with, with your personal history, with your mom having been a refugee, has it, has it changed your perspective? Has it changed your position? Has it become more real, more immersive to you by hearing those stories? Or how has it changed your life, perhaps? There was something that, an idea that ran through everything. And, and I have to say, anything that was graphic was not included mm -hmm. in the program. And I think part of the impact of the program is the absence of those things. And I, I, f <laughs> I fell in love with each of them in a different way. I mean, I really feel like I carry them carry them with me. I, I have to say one thing, and it's it, it comes up especially toward the end of the, of the program. And that is this idea 
that there was always someone who stood up to help. And I understand that that must not have been an easy thing to do. A Certainly, risky thing. Ex- exactly. Not a safe thing to do. You want to keep your family safe? Keep your mouth shut. Yeah. It runs through the storyline in, in, a, in a really astonishing way because I'll tell you the truth. My mother was 14 years old when my grandfather was kidnapped by the brown shirts. It was just a few months after Hitler had come to power. And you can imagine that a teenager would be, I mean, the, she, she witnessed the, the kidnapping of her father. He was picked on because he was probably the best-known Jewish person in the town, and it was a small town with a small Jewish population. But he had a hardware store, so everybody all around the vicinity did business with him. And, of course, the brown shirts who came, they were from someplace else, so nobody knew them. It was, you know, it was part of this this dark, I want to say brilliance. I mean, it was, but anyway... Um, my grandfather survived his beating and torture. And in the end, he and my mother, by that time, 15 years of age, came to the United States together. All her older siblings were already in America. And my uh, Oma came in early 1934. It is interesting, of course, for me sitting across from you to to observe you weaving in and out of the emotions as you as you tell your personal story, but also the story of those who you have interviewed. It's it's significant to the degree that I am wondering how much of a of a spokesperson have you become through this. Say more about that question. About being a spokesperson. Well, here's, I, I know I've, I've kind of wandered far That's afield, okay. but, but what I wanted to say was, mm-hmm. since you asked about what the experience mm-hmm. of making this program, the effect that it's had on me, uh, I'll tell you quite honestly, I understood uh, the Holocaust, I understood in, in, a, in a really black and white way what that was all about. Either you were... A Jew, or you were a Nazi. And this is, I'm sure, my mother as a as a kid. I mean, this was this is what she saw, and this is. I mean, I I feel like in a way this was like her greatest fear, and it was the way that she could understand. She knew that if you weren't Jewish, then you were potentially the source of trouble or so very black and white very black and white and and you know over the course of my life I have done a lot of reading about the holocaust and and you know that black and white has gone to shades of gray you know there's a lot in between either you're a Jew or you're a Nazi obviously and the many stories 
that I heard that became incorporated into this program uh, only amplify that ex- that that effect. And not only is it shades of gray, but there are pops of color. Right colors, good colors, or just colors of darkness? Does oh, the narrative no. continue? Oh no, good, good, good colors. So there is some humanity within within the atrocity. <laughs> Difficult to find, <laughs> it's true. Um, but yeah, I'd say a little. And there's something else that I want to tell you. <laughs> uh, I, one of my memories growing up was of my mother always saying, my children will never set foot on German soil. And when she would say never, her finger would go up in the air. My children will never set foot on German soil. Well, mom, never say never. And I was the first person in my generation to go to Germany and visit my mother's hometown. I have to tell you that my mother had a lot of siblings. Mm -hmm. She was the youngest in her family. All of her brothers and sisters got married and they all had children. So I have many first cousins. I was the first one to go to Germany with my mother. She, oh, curses ringing in my ears. And I went anyway. And what was it like to go on the, I suppose, on the path to discover where your family came from? Well, I had company. I had, there was a young woman who, um, had been in the Twin Cities to do some kind of medical school exchange. She actually lived uh, just outside of Munich. And she said that she would drive me to my mother's town, which was quite some distance. It was close. It's closer, much closer to Frankfurt, actually. And um, so I was not by myself. I think if I had been by myself, as a non-speaker of German, it was, uh, how do you say, streng verboten in our household no german was spoken in our household so i had i had someone with me when i went to so my mom's town and i and i i i remember what it was like when i first i wanted to find her house everybody in the in in my mom's generation all her siblings had a copy of this etching of the house which stood right on the marked platz across from the church with the Rathaus over here and a little inn over here. And I walked in, and the street, it's a cobblestone street. It's quite narrow. I walked in, because it's inside the, the old city wall. And I walked in, and I thought, how am I going to find this place? How am I going to find it? And then I noticed the church I faced the church I closed my eyes I turned around and there was my mother's house and not only am I glad that I found it I have since been in it. I have gone back to this town. I can't count anymore, five or six times. <laughs> so I, I do um, 
It has become a destination for me. Uh, I have made friends in the town. I learned just very recently that um, my my closest friend in the town and my original contact once I started coming back uh, just very recently passed away. So I will not see her again. I feel so sorry about that. But but over the years, I've gone back to visit. I have made friends. I was invited to a ceremony uh, at, at which there was the installation of a plaque, not put, put in the cobblestones. Well, there was a right. big one that was put uh, outside of uh, there's a privacy fence on this one street. Um, and that's where it went. You cannot see the building from the street because the privacy fence, it's high and you can't see through it. Um, but if it's open, which it rarely is, you can walk in and see the building that had been the synagogue mm-hmm. in the town. It was not, dist- it was plundered, you know, completely ransacked on the inside, destruction complete on the inside, but it wasn't burned because the, one wall of the synagogue was just adjacent to the wall of a home of uh, an Aryan person and you know, they didn't want to jeopardize the safety of this house. And so they didn't burn the building. It's quite astonishing. And now there's a plaque as and well. And now there's a plaque, yeah. Let me touch back to the idea of the spokesperson. Um, the narrative of death, unfortunately, of course, is weaving throughout the entire conversation, not just dating back to the... Uh, era of 38 through 45, but also nowadays, particularly with losing those who still remember what it was like. And the reason why I said spokesperson earlier is because of the the messages and stories and, and impressions that you carry within you mm. of having talked to other people. Mm. Uh, do you feel that there is perhaps an associate res- associated responsibility to continue to tell those stories, to continue to represent those who trusted in you to to uh, understand and and listen to their experiences. I simply wish to share the things to which I have been exposed, including some stories that I mean. All right, wait a minute. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. How to answer this? I don't think of myself as a spokesperson. I think of myself and this thing that I have created as a vehicle through which stories, really important stories, can be told and can be learned. And I think that when a person feels like he or she can relate a story I feel like it's part of the way in which we dignify the experience of that person by listening what did in your impression what did Theodore for instance want you to take away from the conversation I would simply say knowledge So there is something they want us to know and to consider and reflect upon for our 
perhaps future own sake? Are there things we are not doing that we should be doing? Yeah, maybe. What are those? Oh, see, now you could... I could go off on a political tangent. I just... <laughs> so that... I, I don't... I'm not sure I want to go there. <laughs> That's fair. I, I, I think that I... I think it's really important to know about things because I think the more we understand about life and history and how we treat other people, I think it's all important to each of us individually so that we can be our best selves. How are we our best selves? There have been a number of times in the past, I'll say, <laughs> two or three years, when I have found myself responding to certain things I hear, and I, 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 I feel like this my compassion button is pushed why because when i hear when i hear people talk about refugees or people of a different religion or something like this and and how we need to keep those people out of this country and then i think well okay so we're if we're not talking about muslims we're talking about jews if we're not talking about mexicans we're talking about what if what if you could take that experience of Jews from the time that Hitler came to power? Because he didn't waste any time. You know, we talk about 1938, but really by the time it got to be 38, it was like too late. Right. So... Um, all the, the, the things that happened either uh, all at once or bit by bit, ways in which Jews in Germany and <laughs> ultimately throughout all of or much of Europe um, were looked upon not only in a negative way, but, you know, it was like being... Not, oh, I feel like like a message at that time to Jews was, you are a threat to the community. You are a threat to the culture. And what do we do with threats? We have to get rid of them, right? And, and I mean... So I think of that when I hear hate speech. It's this, you know, what's the difference between a Mexican person and a Jewish person? Really, from the standpoint of being, being viewed as an other, mm -hmm. an outsider, someone who doesn't belong, someone who might do harm, I, I, it, oh... History has this 
nasty little habit of repeating itself. I think it's. You think? Do I you? I think it's uh, perhaps just changes its stripes, if you will. But at the end, it's still. Well, and 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 that is, that really frightens me. I, I know I know this to be true. I think what we're seeing is kind of a rehash and with a slightly different face on it, but it's the same idea, and I, it worries me, and it saddens me, and it frightens me. We share a common acquaintance who is also a legendary person uh, here at the GEI, Fred Amram, yes. who I also <laughs> get uh, to talk with again here in the next couple of days. And in our first interview in 2018, December of 2018, I asked him, what does it feel like right now? And his response was within just a split second, mm. Germany 1930. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Exactly that. And I, mind you, I, I was not, I am not of the generation that was born in Europe. No, I was born here, but... And I feel like it, there's this existential uh, question that keeps bubbling up in the United States, and that is about what kind of people are we? And how do we see our place in the world? And what happened to our compassion as a society? You know, there's a, one of the stories in the program is related by someone who is now the only surviving person in his entire family. It was the story that was told about the, the cruise ship, the St. Louis, headed for Havana, mm -hmm. and they wouldn't let it in. And then it headed up the East Coast, and the United States wouldn't let it in. 900 and some Jewish refugees. Uh, the Canadians also turned their backs and so the ship had to go back to Europe mm -hmm. <sighs> this is I think it does not speak very well of certain things about the society in this country I am sure I I I, I have not heard this from out of her mouth, but I am I am quite certain that um, if my mother's older siblings were not already in the United States and had not been able to sponsor her and my grandparents, maybe they would not have gotten out. And since you were born here, that would, of course, question your existence, too. Oh, no question. I, well, you and I would not be sitting across this table having this conversation. Of that, I am completely certain. It's tough. It's it, really, you it's, know, when you think about it. It's difficult to think about. Yes, yes. it is. It's, yes, it is. But I do think about it. And, and, and that's something that is always present. And I am always grateful. And I always try to find my compassion itself for that reason. Which particularly makes this, this topic so challenging because the majority of, of Americans 
are descendants of, of Europeans in one way or another, whether they, whether they were the descendants of refugees throughout the Second World War or came to the U.S. predating that, with, without their escape, if you will, of their ancestors, the, the majority of us would not be here, yet we still fail to reflect upon the needs of those who actually seek refuge. Why, why are we experiencing this human condition to that degree that, of course, we, we are interested in our personal safety and we want to essentially build a fence around our, our well-being? But then, and as I'm looking at the name here again on, on my screen, uh, Theodore Pickle, what would he think about that? What would, what would your mom think about that? What, what do you, particularly reflecting that your existence would not be possible in the manner that it is, what do you think about that? As for Theo, you know, um, he was my friend, not my parent. <laughs> um, my mother, I, I mean, I don't know, they're all gone now. Uh, but I am, I am, I am always cognizant of the facts of my family and that if my mother had not been able to leave when she did, then that I, I, I would not be here. I'm bringing your mom into into this particular next question, uh, it, it sort of uh, builds a nice, uh, if you will, uh, pedestal to ask. Uh-oh. <laughs> With your mom's uh, insistence that German is not spoken in this house and your, uh, her insistence for you not to visit Germany, and then I'm reflecting upon Fred Amram having gotten his German citizenship reinstated. Yes. Yes. What what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's very interesting because my mother always said it was at my father's insistence that German not be spoken at home. But hey, wait a minute. He he he, he didn't speak German. <laughs> he didn't know any German. I mean, although there are many clear linguistic connections between Yiddish and German. But so she always blamed it on him. Interestingly, interestingly, she, I recall when she, when I was a child, that my mother would speak German with her siblings if she was talking, say, on the telephone to my Aunt Hedvish or, you know, I, whomever, she would speak auf Deutsch. She counted in German. It was still easier for her to mm-hmm. count in German than in English. And the bookmobile, I grew up in, in New York City in an area called Washington Heights that mm-hmm. at that time, those of us who are of a certain background uh, call it affectionately Frankfurt on the Hudson because there were tens, <laughs> there were tens of thousands of German Jewish refugees who settled in that neighborhood. It was a real... German-speaking neighborhood. I had not heard that before. This is great. Oh, yes. Frankfurt on the Hudson. Frankfurt on the Hudson. A whole generation of us know it in this in this way. And um, the bookmobile used to come down Fort Washington Avenue by the back of the elementary school. And they had 
all kinds of, of books, books for kids in English, uh, books for adults in English, but they also had a German language. This bookmobile brought German language books. And my mother always enjoyed reading in German. Isn't that something? Most of the kids with whom I went to elementary school were Jewish kids. And I, I, I couldn't say exactly what the percentage was, but there was a fairly large percentage of students in the school, which at that time was kindergarten through... When I started, it was kindergarten through eight, then it was switched to kindergarten through sixth, so that, you know, they um, established the junior high system to uh, alleviate overcrowding in elementary schools and high schools. I am, after all, I am of the baby boomer generation. And so this was, this was, so kindergarten through, through sixth grade. Um, I'm sorry, I don't have my Graduation picture taken outside the school. It's all of the kids, all of the kids. I could, I could name many of them still, <laughs> and I could count up for you how many of them were the children of refugees. But I, I would say it was a significant um, percentage. Did the community mostly keep to itself, or did you mingle, so to speak, with with the other boroughs? The downtown part of Manhattan is is pretty flat. The northern part of Manhattan, where I grew up, is high, high, high up with a valley through which Broadway runs. And interestingly, there were ethnic neighborhoods that kind of clustered by virtue of the topography. So on one side of Broadway, it was... Frankfurt on the Hudson, it was the mostly German-Jewish community. Mm -hmm. On the other side of Broadway, also up a high, high hill, uh, mostly Greeks and Armenians. Below the bridge, George Washington Bridge, um, at that time it was mostly Puerto Rican. Up to the north of the park, mostly Irish. And so it was. It was partly because of the topography and the geography of that area that that um, ethnic neighborhoods kind of clustered. Uh, so then, when I went to junior high, that's when I encountered kids of other backgrounds. And then when I went to high school, I actually went to um, not the one in my neighborhood. I went to an all-city public school, specialized public school. And so that's where I encountered kids from all over the city before. I remember the first time I went to visit a friend of mine in Brooklyn, it was three trains or maybe even four. And it took almost two hours to get there. But I was going to like, it was like being in a new, <laughs> a new country. <laughs> so yeah, I think there was a certain amount of, of, um, uh, neighborhood cohesion, but that is not something that had only to do with the German Jews. Everybody's like that. Interestingly, my little neighborhood 
whenever there was something going on in the world, we'd have new neighbors and new kids in school. Um, the Hungarian Revolution, 1956. All of a sudden, there was a girl in our class whose family had gotten out of Budapest and settled in our neighborhood. Uh, when uh, Castro took over in Cuba, all of a sudden, there were Cuban kids and their parents who were in the neighborhood and in the school. How were they, work, how were they welcomed? Accepted? Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Embraced? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, well, you know, if, if it weren't any of those people, once upon a time it was us. We were the ones who were the newcomers. I don't know, this is, this is kind of getting deep in the weeds. <laughs> of course it is. That, that's the beauty of a podcast. We do have unlimited time. We are not confined oh to 50 god. minutes. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. See, I was thinking the beauty of a podcast is I'm, we're, we, we're not constrained by time, so it doesn't have to be 59 minutes. It could be 23 minutes. <laughs> it so. technically can. But, no, really, what, what I'm targeting oh my here god. is actually... Let's not, I mean, uh, I, is there something that I am misunderstanding? No, what I'm targeting is actually quite simple. Uh, without... Let me not beat around the bush, then. Uh, with... With the, with the setup of, um, let's say, cultural pockets, whether that's informed through uh, heritage or through nationality, from my very limited perspective and understanding, it would just set up the next misery in terms of, oh, this is my turf and you are not happening in my backyard, which is reminiscent to some degree what Nazi Germany did. So I am wondering whether there was a learning experience and an experience perspective that, no, I will see you as a human being regardless of your nationality. You are here because you have a reason. You are embraced. You are welcome. You are empathetically included into our community outside of that which we experienced through our own misery. I like that. Cultural pockets. That's a, that's a really good way to describe what I was trying to uh yeah hmm. but but I but I, I I you know maybe because it was New York right which is a you know it's 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 it is truly the most international city people from all over the world are in New York and I do not I guess I, it never occurred to me that there was turf turf that was ours or turf that was this one or turf that was that one and you couldn't New York's just not like that it's not like that Mindy in the context of our conversation uh, there, there are a million roads we can take but the thing that always bugs me in having personal conversations is that I always feel like there is something that I'm forgetting to ask <laughs> What what could I, or should I have asked what is of importance? I don't know. I mean, of course, if I tell you everything, then nobody's going to want to listen to the program right, or right, yeah. or come to GAI for the fair <laughs> enough for the for the program. But I um I don't know. Let's see. This doesn't have anything to do with. Um, Nazis or the Holocaust, but something that has to do with the time that I was growing up 
When I was a kid, I was growing up with other kids whose parents were refugees or sometimes immigrants. So we were the first native-born generation, although, you know, my, my dad was born in New York, but his older sister and brother were both born in Lithuania. So he was of the immigrant generation. Uh, so so here's my generation. I, I am the first native-born generation. I am the first generation for which, whom, hmm, English is the mother tongue. And it was only when I went away to, and this was, this was an experience also with kids of other ethnic and religious backgrounds who I encountered in school. Everybody was like the child of a newcomer. And then I came to the Midwest <laughs> to go to university. Seriously. And I encountered people who were third or fourth or even fifth generation. I feel close to Europe. I feel like I have one foot in America, mm-hmm. the place of my birth and my citizenship, and one foot in Europe because of my my background. It doesn't seem remote to me at all. And I think maybe one of the reasons why keeping a narrative alive is so that the generations that follow, a lot of those young people have no idea what the Holocaust was. Right. No idea. So to get to your point about how uh, the, the lessons of history, you know, if they're not heeded, they will be repeated. It's really important that they understand you know, what happened in the past so that that everybody can make sure that it doesn't happen again. So I know that seems ridiculously optimistic, you know, just because of the, the state of the world now, but, but I, I think we need to remember that there are very valuable lessons to be learned so the more people who can speak to us the better with that let's reflect one more time on the program january 27th was the date on air kaddish reflections on the holocaust in music and words and i know that we can probably go on for hours and i think we should probably repeat this at some point in the future Mindy Radner, NPR, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. And hope to welcome you back here soon. Thank you.